0: Okay, so yeah, what was our question again? I forgot. I think our question is why therapy won't work. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, okay. There's one easy, there, There's one answer that's very easy and obvious right off the bat. And um, it was amazing. I, I was just at a conference and somebody raised their hand, and it was exactly. I must get this phone call once a week. And it was a mother who was concerned about the <laughs> kid and telling me all about, you know, the, the various addictions and whatnot. Um, you know, the the I think there's a little bit of abuse going on. Um, I don't recall. It was a very public forum, so she was going through some details, and I was kind of mm-hmm. hurrying her along. But lo and behold, at the very end, I have to ask the question, so how old is your son? Well, he's 27. It's like, <gasps> well... Uh- Yep. I can't I can't go arrest him, drag him into my office, tie him to the couch and make him do therapy. You yeah. know, it's, that's not an option. I mean, yeah. maybe some version of that was an option once upon a time, but mm-hmm. um, not today and not in California. So the, the fundamental answer is. Or the, the, the first of many reasons why therapy won't work is you got to be willing to engage in the process mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, without that that's that's that is the sine qua non of therapy yeah. um, I guess, but i'm sure you get that kind of phone call too all the time oh, yeah yeah a lot of moms
0: and a lot of sons that need to be fixed <laughs> or fathered yep. um and you know it's it's true and it's it's hard um hard family dynamic sometimes with this, especially if there's a dad not in the picture. But um yeah, that, that piece of motivation interest has to be there. Which kinda goes, you know, I think before we jump into that, more my question is, what do you think are the assumptions people make coming into therapy? Whether it's, you know, the client themselves or the mom <laughs> that's trying to get their kid to go to therapy. Um you know, yeah. where people are assuming.
1: Well. Hmm. I think so. Yeah, once you get past the I'm willing to walk into your office and actually do this, um, whatever this is, uh, there are a whole lot of assumptions surrounding the question. What is it we're going to do here? Mm -hmm. Um, and some of those assumptions are culturally conditioned. Some of those assumptions are um, kind of surround the popular um, uh, mythology of what psychotherapy is, you know, the kind of Fraser Crane version of psychotherapy, (laughs) um, which, you know, is mildly, mildly delightful. Or I guess there was that HBO show in treatment, which um, Mm. I think does a, a better job of I mean. (laughs) <laughs> it suffers from the same problem bad therapists suffer from. We deal too much with the therapist's personal life, right? Yeah. Um, so, so that might be another thing to put on the list of why therapy won't work. You know, apart from the assumptions that the client brings, there's also the behavior of the therapist in all of this too, which needs to be looked at. You know, and and mm-hmm. too much self revelation is a is can be a problem if not handled properly. Yeah, exactly. But let's yeah. put that to the side. I think, and and let's. <laughs> let's air our grievances about our clients first <laughs> uh, So um, or at least those those strange phone calls. One assumption which always gets me, and, and let's stick to the example I already threw out, the, the mother and the son. One example that always gets me is that by dropping him off, I am going to, this a change will happen. Mm. And this guy, in my case, you know, because I'm a guy, is going to to um, straighten my kid out, you know, it's going to get him to, to, what is it, uh, straighten up and fly right. Um, and that's not, that's rarely sufficient to make therapy work, mm-hmm. you know, especially for us marriage and family, a systems therapist, um, we are looking at what role mom is playing. We are looking at what role um, the, the broader community is playing in this person's life and what role this person is taking in those different contexts. And, and, you know, there is, and I have to have this pep talk with teenagers all the time is there is, um, you know, something, you know, to the notion that if I change a little bit, eventually the things around me will change. And there is truth to that, but in a lot of cases, a lot better change and a lot quicker change perhaps takes place when everybody in the system is looking to grow up or what have you, um, make a healthy adaptation. Um, so that's the first one is that by simply dropping my kid off, and I guess really we haven't even gotten to the client here and the assumptions the client makes, we're getting to the assumptions a lot of parents make um, or caretakers or what have you, that simply by Dropping him off and not engaging with him outside of the sessions, mm-hmm. change is going to take place. And as often happens in couples therapy, the assumption is that they're the one who has to change, not me, yeah. not, you know, um, not the system, not the whatever. You know, the only problem here is the dude sitting on the couch and.
0: Yeah, you
1: kind of The whole truth.
0: Yeah, I think the the person we see the most is the identified patient of the family, right? The probably the black sheep is, you know, you know, Timmy is causing the problems, so he's the one who's going to get to go to therapy. <laughs> yes, right. And yeah, you know, not not that individual therapy doesn't work, but you know, there, yeah, you're right. There's something too. There's the dynamic playing out. There are relationships. Um, that are influencing things and that this person is not behaving how they're behaving inside a vacuum or a bubble right that there are definite things pushing on them so uh, yeah i think that's a big assumption that parents make is um because we both see a lot of teens you know parents can drop off their teen and think okay well this is what he is doing wrong or struggling with and you know i'm gonna i'm gonna wait outside (laughs) and it, it can be harder to, to work with the parents because there's, there's kind of that mindset shift that, Hey, this isn't just your team. And, and some parents are very good about like recognizing, Oh, you know what? I think this is impacting him. I think this is what is happening in our family is kind of, you know, influencing this type of behavior. But, um, sometimes it's, yeah, it's really hard. It's kind of like a after school program. I'll drop them off. Um, you know he'll be fathered or fixed, and then I'll pick him up in 45 minutes. Um, so that, that's a that's a big one. That, that's hard.
1: That's that is a big one, and it's interesting. You talk about um, there are parents who are sensitive to um, the need to change the way that they are parenting a teenager, mm-hmm. and and there are a lot of kind of impediments to executing that realization. One of which is, especially with, it, it seems to me, with larger families, which um, I have a fair number of, or at least members of, uh, in my practice, one difficulty is that um, there are still lots of little kids in the house. And so one style of parenting is still quite appropriate to the vast majority of the people in the home. And then these ones at the top, um, you know, I, I, I've never met an oldest child who, at some point, didn't get an apology from their parents because mm-hmm. they didn't know what they were doing, you know? <laughs> you know, that first time around. so there there is um, this difficulty with learning a new style of parenting a a quasi-autonomous, mildly intelligent teenager. Yeah. Um, and and it's interesting because I think societally, this is a relatively new problem because my favorite example when I, when I think about this is the book Johnny Tremaine because it's a relatively historically accurate book. Um, the boy described in there is relatively um, uh, typical of his time. And we're talking about a 13-year-old who basically is a small business owner and already has a marriage proposal and is about and – it, and it is more integrated into adult society than most 30-year-olds I know. So, I mean, yeah, and, and the, you know, the, the point of the book is that all that falls apart and then he has to rebuild it. But he rebuilds it before he's 18, you know, and, and we're dealing with 20-year-olds who can't even get out of their house. And, you know, I'm you – know, yeah. not to denigrate that because there are reasons for that, of course, but it's an interesting thing. I think – it's fair to say that this problem of trying to figure out how to parent a teenager is a relatively new problem. Yeah, true.
0: Yeah. And I think part of, part of the problem that I see working with teens a lot of time is, is the role of the father. And that, that might be something special to us as male therapists, but, you know, because it's coming up, I think it's it's worth mentioning that there is kind of a, a tendency, especially for families where the the father is not in the household or not involved, that there there can be an assumption or a temptation to say he's going to go to a male therapist. He needs the male model, um, and this therapist is going to teach him how to be a man, <laughs> right? Um, and we can't replace fathers. That's not our job. That's not our role. But there is something to, especially young young people. I guess it's not just daughters too, but young people having a space um, to talk about thoughts and feelings and to learn that, hey, this is worth looking at and there's, this is worth exploring. that that can often be missed in in the household. And you know, even even families where the dad is physically present, a lot of times the dad isn't emotionally present. Um, and so I see a lot of that going on. And, you know, it's not all bad. It's it's not all good. There's, you know, there's benefits to it and there, there could be a, a reliance on it too much. But I'd say it's a big factor. And uh, I don't know if you've seen that as well.
1: No, no, precisely. The therapeutic relationship is insufficient to replace the... Mm-hmm. the the paternal relationship or even the maternal relationship now it's a it's a interesting question because so so there's two thoughts that come to my mind the first is that um, there is a clear need for um, what's the popular phrase allo parenting so where where um, external members of the family engage in a quasi parental role over this this in this person's life and that role it seems to me is designed to help that person the teenager in this case confirm uh, much of what they've been taught in the home or to edit and correct what they've been taught in the home such that following ericsson they can inter-society in a, in a mildly productive way, engage with other people in a, in a way that is um, a synthesis of the, the household rules and the, the societal rules. And, and I think allo parents do, and in addition to supplementing or providing some of that, that paternal guidance, in my case, paternal guidance that a dad should provide if a dad is missing, you know, from the picture and for whatever reason or in, in whatever, um, uh, whether he's physically present and emotionally absent or what have you. Uh, there There is a place for that. But it seems to me the therapeutic relationship, well, just the amount of time is insufficient to say nothing of yeah. the, stru- the strictures that go into the type of relationship. I mean, so so assuming I'm right, that part of the allo parent role is to help um, provide an example of how to live in society. Mm-hmm. My clients don't get much of an example of how I live in society. Mm-hmm. By no. design. By design. <laughs> They're Ooh, not supposed yeah, to. Yeah. I mean, I'm a little more public because I'm online and you know, a lot of people come from various parishes I go to, but yeah. Look, even people who know me, I mean, I'm a reserved guy. And, you know, aside from the occasional political post on Facebook, you don't know much about me. Um, yeah. So, all right. So don't go on the ramp. Don't go on a search, please.
0: Because <laughs> 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 I don't really
1: want to know what's behind. I'm
0: privacy settings right
1: now. <laughs> but um, but my, my point is that it's yes, we provide a safe place to explore emotions behaviors and thoughts yeah for a limited period of time on a weekly basis and that's just insufficient to to for me to take the place of this kid's dad that's just insufficient
0: Yeah. yeah absolutely and i guess you know we we probably do model permission for those things just by asking certain questions right you know, sometimes I ask questions, people are like, oh, what, what do you mean? Like, oh, and they're kind of intrigued by that. I can tell that they haven't been asked that before. So I think, yeah, we, we don't have that example of our own lives in therapy, right? There's there's not much witnessing going on there. There really shouldn't be too much. Um, but yeah, sometimes it's just allowing and giving permission to explore certain things um, in even if that's just our prompting or just giving them space to, to talk. But um, I think another assumption that kind of goes along with what you're saying about the limited time is that um, I, I, I've experienced clients that come into therapy with the idea that therapy is kind of like a medical checkup, right? Um, that it's a quick fix or it's just, oh, you know, we'll just check back in every once in a while. Um, you know, it's like, Oh, they're going through a hard time. Let's just do a session here. We'll three months, <laughs> and and there's there is some frustration with that as a therapist because I mean, just first of all, it takes time to get to know a client. You know, it's forty five minutes. You're not going to dive into, you know, what's going on in their life really, really well. You know, it, it, there's a level of just building rapport and and understanding who they are and and what's going on. Um, <clears throat> And, you know, the other fact is that three months going by or one month going by is you forget stuff and they forget stuff. And usually 45 minutes is not going to build tools and build enough reflection to have someone change for the next three months. So I always recommend that when people first come in, you know, let's let's try to do once a week for at least a month and then kind of evaluate and see where things are going. But um I find that a challenge too. people kind of want spread it out and, and, you know, make it kind of sporadic.
1: Yes, that, so, so we could put that as number two or three reason why therapy doesn't work is the frequency of therapy that people are willing to enter into. And I know this one therapist, he was, um, one of my teachers in college, actually, I think, and or at the the, the grad school and he does um one session every day for seven days as his initial yeah as his initial way of getting to know the client and it's i mean if if you're willing to write that check awesome um or spread that payment over time or something awesome and that's i that's kind of the extreme version of what we're talking about here Mm -hmm. but i think you know, that's there's something attractive to that. You know, yeah. um, I don't know how comfortable I would be doing that, but um, I think it would be a good thing for both of us. You know, it would establish a relationship. Yeah, um, yeah. Because one of the things that happens in in over the course of therapy is that the client does begin to get these little glimmers of um, of me. You know, everything from. I once had a client try have a try to have a full conversation about why my my dress shoes were scuffed, and is it because I walked to work? Is it because I um, hit it on the car? What what did I? Am I just lazy and don't polish it? Which is very true, uh, you know. And it's a combination of all those things. But they were intensely fixated on this one detail, wow. and and they did that in every session. Picked a detail and and really honed in on what that meant about me. Wow. Uh, but it's an interesting thing that um, if a client doesn't first have a relationship with us, uh, then therapy doesn't take place. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there can be an, an exchange of maybe tools, a kind of, you know, answering of a, of a particular problem and providing you a, a resource that works for most people Mm-hmm. but you can get that on a call-in talk show. Yeah. You know, I mean, write a letter to Andrew Clavin and you'll get practically the same advice, you know, that you would get in that context. Um, so, you know, it, that's different than therapy. Mm-hmm. And so if people aren't willing to have a relationship with us, and it's an interesting thing, and it's worth exploring with the client actually. so So, you know, make the observation that, look, it seems to me like, I don't know what the nice way to say this is. You're having a difficult time uh, having a relationship, or or it seems to me you're distant or not fully present in this process, or some variation on that. Which, you know, Um, and see what they say. I mean, there isn't a millennial I've ever had walk through my office who didn't at some point talk about how difficult it is to have a relationship, Mm. to make friends, to talk to somebody, to look them in the eye, to you know, all, all the rest of it. So, yeah. yeah,
0: And then that might go into the next, I guess, assumption is, um, you know, that, that therapy is advice giving, right? That that's our role is to, you know, let's hear about your life and I'll tell you what to do right and what to change. Um, So how, how do you think that looks when, you know, I, I guess what are, what are the main differences you see between let's say
1: counseling or therapy? well or or between life coaching and therapy Mm, uh, which which is both of which i engage in um, because um, i treat life coaching as a much more um, solution oriented where we outline the problem as quick as possible and we find a solution and if that doesn't work we grab another one and we apply it or we modify it you know and it's it's rarely the other distinction i would make there is that it's rarely focused on the emotional <clears throat> of a client's life now that's not always true but um it is often true that you're focused almost strictly on a behavioral phenomena in a client's yeah. life now you know and and that's not always true because people are, are a big package of course mm-hmm. and it's interesting if you talk to financial advisors a good which is a, a an intensely behaviorally focused activity mm-hmm. advising someone what to do with their money there is a big the good financial advisors will always be sensitive to their client's emotional emotions yeah. surrounding money yeah I mean, you know what's what's Dave Ramsey's big phrase? Um, debt is not a math problem; it's a heart problem, or something yeah. like that. You know, and he says uh,
0: you should you should feel it. You should hurt when you give your money away, right? That's why he's he's against credit cards and stuff. He wants you to feel the pain of handing someone cash, like oh, there it goes. <laughs> so that's that's very true.
1: Need to do that. I need to do that. <laughs> I need to do that anyhow um if you want to find my patreon page we'll put a link below by the way <laughs> <laughs> but that being said um no the the difficulty that clients have with um engaging in a relationship can be very much part of the therapeutic process and indeed on on some level simply building a relationship with someone mm. um is a can be in and of itself very therapeutic yeah. irrespective of the problem mm-hmm. uh, and so yeah when when people have the assumption that they're there to make or to, to simply take our advice, mm-hmm. you know sometimes that works, but it never successfully addresses the emotional paradigms going on in a person's life
0: mm-hmm. yeah
1: it it can address discrete problems in the present yeah but it's never going to take a look at what got you here it's never going to achieve i think what socrates would call it's never going to achieve self knowledge it's strictly going to achieve a kind of concrete change um Mm -hmm.
0: yeah you're, you're, you're having you might change the behavior but you're going back to the same um conflict tension dynamic whatever it may be you're not getting to the root of the problem or solving, solving that right problem. So, yeah. Yeah. The relationship definitely is a, a strong tool. And I think in our modern age, you know, where more and more people are feeling disconnected because of technology, um, they feel more awkward because of technology, because they don't know how to do the face to face. Um, and so, Part of using the the relationship, the therapeutic relationship, as a tool is there's just some sort of comfort and be like, oh, I can talk to people, <laughs> I can be vulnerable with people, and this isn't this isn't weird, or you know, this person isn't judging me, and so that can be a really hopeful encounter as well to say, wow, I can talk with somebody and, and not be judged or not feel ashamed, and um, yeah, that, that's pretty that's pretty
1: powerful. I think about that. <laughs> I'm like, wow, yeah. It is that's very nice. powerful. And and another element of that, which I think is if done correctly by the therapist, can also be very powerful mm-hmm. is that experience of being able to sit in a room with somebody who holds slightly different opinions. Yeah. And and that's a that's a delicate one because the therapist does have to be careful about what um, he or what I divulge. Um, but it's an important experience that most, that our, our technological society, our, our social media society does not um, occasion or offer people very, very frequently because we are able to curate our, <coughs> our Facebook feed, our, our Instagram feed. I mean, if I want to simply talk to people who have um, beagle dogs, then I can do that, you know. If I want to only talk to people of, of a of a particular political opinion, I can do that. Uh, which, which to me is is intensely anti, it, it, frankly, anti-family on some level, anti-city on another. I mean, some of the, some of the greatest historical events of of the Middle Ages took place because cities were at literally at war with each other. I mean. Uh, you, Dante would not be capable of populating his hell or his heaven if there wasn't two political parties in Italy that were fighting with each other. It just yeah. would have been impossible for him. You know, probably, I mean, anyhow. So that's that's maybe a stretch of a reference, but there you go. Um, so yeah, and, and I do think a therapist can offer their client that opportunity. Um, <coughs> And there are kind of some, some very clear chances for a person to learn that kind of um, uh, emotional strength to be able to present their own opinion in the face of possible contradiction,
0: mm-hmm.
1: potential contradiction. There may or may not be contradiction. There may just be judgment or there may be a kind of, you know, a mutual exchange of views, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, But that's something which I've only ever kind of waded into um, after the relationship had been long and firmly established, you know. But that is another opportunity that therapy provides, I think, for people, which our society does not provide with as much frequency as it once did. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I think what strikes me too is, with social media, it's kind of this unfiltered, you know, opposition at times. And we can say, I don't want to see this. And we can unfriend people or unfollow pages and things like that. But in doing that, we're kind of getting a lower tolerance for ourselves to hear any opposition, right? It's like, yeah, it's, it's good to not have to hear, <laughs> you know, what you disagree with 24-7 every time you open your phone. but but we need we need some opposition we need some tension to grow and i think there's a lower tolerance of that in society and and therapy you know I, I guess the difference between that and counseling is that um unless you're carl rogers and you have that unconditional regard you might be using that therapeutic relationship to say you know it seems like it's really difficult for you or you know like like there's a lot of anger here or that to, to point out the obstacles of the room for growth and to even call a client to, to, you know, become better, um, that there, there can be, and especially that, that was hard for me starting out as a therapist, but there are times in therapy where I need to poke my clients and be like, Hey, (laughs) what's going on here? You know, like you're, you're saying this and then you're doing this and it's not adding up. And, that part, that accountability piece, but that, you know, um, yeah, that call to hire is, is really important. I think it's different from counseling. Um, and like you said, it, it relies really on a heavy rapport and relationship where you can call people out and there's a level of trust there, but that, that is so important because, you know, as, as you know, consulting and, and, seeing couples, I mean, there's a lot of pushing. <laughs> there's a lot of pushing and yeah. awkward conversations and um, as therapists, and so that's, yeah, that's super necessary to kind of.
1: Sometimes you know, the, the firmest, the firmest and, and and quickest response I ever got to the question, you know, how could therapy have been better for you? So when I'm terminating with a client, yeah. um, was you could have challenged me more. And had this client, he had it on the tip of his tongue ready to go. He knew exactly what I wasn't providing that he needed. Sure. And so that's something I've been sensitive to as well and, and gets back to kind of the beginning of our conversation where we differentiated the role between a therapist and a, and a, a parental, a paternal yeah. figure in a client's life. You know, especially for men, I don't know what it's like for women um, other than what some of them have told me. But there does need to be this um, incremental challenge or call to greater perfection, to, to improvement in the various areas, domains of our life. And a therapist, I think, can and I think often should provide that in clear terms. Now th- this is kind of anathema to the education I received, uh, where sh- therapy is strictly an experience of uh, listening and reflecting the client's uh, experience. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, and I would love to to dig around a little bit and see if there isn't a study on this, uh, but I wonder if that right there isn't the fundamental reason why so few men go to therapy. Mm. Mm. I think my gut tells me that would be in the top three reasons why men don't go or persevere in therapy is because there is, um, it's on some level it is simply or can devolve, I think, or or simply become a uh, exploration and reflection of what's taking place without any momentum Mm -hmm. for Without yeah. any um, desire for improvement, and it's an interesting thing. I mean, guys want to get better at what they do, mm-hmm. you know, and they want to do the best they can. And if there isn't somebody challenging or prodding or pointing the way or helping them out, mm-hmm. then that relationship, I think, loses a lot of value for guys. You know.
0: Yeah. True. Guys are tend to, to want to fix things
1: more. Right? You see that with couples. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, typically it's C.S. Lewis's image of friendship, right? Two people shoulder to shoulder, advancing forward towards yeah. a common goal. You know, if you're gonna have a relationship with your therapist, you know, it can't be you know a perfect friendship mm-hmm. because you can't know everything about each other. But it needs to be. It needs to have that element of advancing towards a common goal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If I think if guys are going to stay in therapy,
0: yeah, and and yeah, that's a good point. And sometimes I think with guys, especially, it could be the reminder that that reflecting on their current state or reflecting on something ha- that has happened is pushing forward. That they could take it as like, well, I don't, I don't want to just you know go over the past over and over again, but that work to say, you know, this is worth looking at um, is taking. For it's like making meaning of our experiences and our, and our past and, and, and it's that sometimes they need that reminder because they could feel like, okay, but what do I do next? Like, how do I make this better? And, you know, there's a lines, like, we're looking for an answer that that God hasn't asked the question to yet, right? He hasn't asked of us to to, you know, go forward in a way that maybe we're looking to go forward, but that we're asked to go forward by, you know, doing this introspective work or um making meaning of things that have happened to us and that that can be hard too because it doesn't feel like well it's not immediately getting better but there is healing going on in there um so yeah that that can be hard too i think there's a reminder needed that hey this is (laughs) this is valuable this is still a step in the right direction
1: well and and I mean, you describe it beautifully. It has to be that kind of exploration has to be contextualized as part of the process of moving forward, of part of the process of finding a solution. Um, it cannot be, or I, th- I think therapy suffers when that becomes an end in itself, to simply engage in the exploration mm-hmm. as an end in itself, rather yeah. than as a part of the process of of growth and improvement Mm -hmm. and and so that perhaps i mean we didn't articulate it as such but that might be another assumption as -hmm. to why therapy doesn't work people are um they have a a hmm what would be the right way to summarize the last 10 minutes they have a false understanding or or impression of the role of emotions in therapy Mm -hmm. The, yeah. the place of emotions in in a therapeutic relationship mm-hmm.
0: yeah and you kind of see that across the board some people come into therapy thinking emotions are you know the devil and we we just have to logically figure this out and you know some people it's it's only emotions um so you know that's that's another challenge um that varies pretty heavily but um yeah that, thing to encounter is to see where where people place emotions because it's just it's all over the board it's like do i just give into everything or do i just you know push that down and never look at it (laughs) yeah right right there's a lot in the middle but um... my
1: favorite image um for emotions and i think this comes out of aristotle's ethics um i'm almost certain it does but it's it's also present in in Plato's Republic, and it's present, um, I think, a little bit in in Thomas's Saint Thomas's commentary on on the ethics. But you know, the emotions and the uh, memory and the intellect and the the um, imagination and the will they they work like a city. You know, they they all of the, the the way to imagine these things is to imagine them like. Like members of a of a city state, and uh, I think Aristotle it is that has the line where the 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 will is supposed to govern all of these, not like a tyrant, but like a like a polity, like like a, a like a, a democratically elected leader does. He yeah. sometimes has to listen to the voice of you know the the cobblers union, so he has to sometimes listen to the voice of sorrow. Or he has to sometimes listen to the the um, the soldiers. So he has to listen to fortitude, or he has to listen to what courage tells him to do. Sometimes he has to listen to um, uh, a, a different, you know, the farmers, and so he has to, you know, give in a little bit on uh, temperance, but not too far. You know, there, there's this this listening to all the the the, the raucous noise of your emotions and and giving them following them when they they are in accord with right reason you know when they are in accord with the proper measurement or rule yeah. then you know we give them voice but the minute you let one of those those you know the minute you let the farmers run into the city mm-hmm. and and burn all the other houses down, and you all you have left are farmers. You don't right. have a city, and you have a smoldering ruin. So, mm-hmm. so the analogy would be: the minute you let your desire for food take complete control of your life, you you know the the obvious problems that yeah. that come with devoting your life strictly to food consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you. it's 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 not about <laughs> it's not about killing the various you know emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is about listening and about deciding how far is it proper for me to let this voice rule the day. Yeah,
0: yeah that's, a, that's a really great, great image. I love that because farmers aren't bad, but if you let them rule and only include the needs of the farmers, then you don't have a healthy city, right? Um, so, yeah, that's that's a really great way to look at it.
1: Well, and that's why a healthy political system is is important because it does function as a um, externalization of my interior life. Yeah, you know, or of a well ordered interior life. So, um, I think there's, I think the interplay between your broader political system and your interior life is is hardly even guessed at by most people, but I think it's an important meditation. Um, And it gets us a little far afield from why therapy doesn't work, although I guess bringing up politics would be one reason therapy doesn't work. But um, anyways, the the example works. Modern politics probably reflects the inner life of man, so I think that's a worthy – Conclusion. Well, what's the phrase, you know, the, the the parish gets the priest they deserve, the the people get the the president they deserve, you know? I mean, yeah. it's, it's the, often these things are a reflection of, oh, well, Jordan Peterson sums it up beautifully a thousand times over. People tend to vote their temperament.
0: Yeah.
1: Now, you know, your big five temperament, people with a high openness tend to vote liberal. Mm-hmm. People with a low... Um, I can't even remember what it was, but a uh, lower on one of the other or high conscientiousness. That's it. Mm-hmm. And devote, um, conservative, you know, and yeah. that's almost, almost universally true. Wow, And
0: so I guess my, my last question before we wrap up, and this might kind of point to what therapy should look like and, or, you know, what we, we look for, but what would you say your ideal client is? Cause I, I think, it's easy to talk about, oh, what to look for in a therapist, which is which is helpful. But also what as a therapist, what is your ideal client?
1: Now, this is a very important question, not just for the therapists who listen to us, because every therapist does have to answer this at some point and and pursue this kind of client at some point if they are going to be financially successful. Yeah, um, you, you there's no way around it um, and not only financially successful, but unlike St. Paul, a therapist cannot be all things to all diagnoses. You know, we, you know, I got into this cause I wanted to work with depression cause I kind of sympathize with it. I kind of understood it. You know, the, the desire to suicide makes a lot of sense to me on some level, you know? And so it's like, um, that's the people I wanted to work with. Now, since then, I've learned a lot about a lot of other things, mm-hmm. and I can help a lot of other people, OCD yeah. being a great example. I had no desire to go anywhere near that, and <laughs> half my clientele are, are yeah. OCD. Yeah. So, so anyways, just to, just to emphasize the importance of answering this question, not only for the therapist, but also for the client even to ask their therapist, you know, you don't want to be working with somebody who is not familiar with your needs, Yeah, at least in the in the broad general sense of the term. Mm-hmm. So. And so, you know, one of the problems, especially when you market yourself as a Catholic therapist, is that. You know, Catholicism is not yet a medically recognized diagnosis. Um, I, I think we're moving there on some level, but more about that later, I suppose. Yeah, uh, so, So by advertising as a Catholic, I'm not advertising to a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And so every diagnosis walks through the door because unfortunately by the grace of baptism, we're not immune to certain medical disorders um, as delightful as that might be. So what happens is that I have to turn away some clients or refer them out and, and they don't get the the glorious experience of sitting in the room with me, um, which would be a miserable experience for them because I'm, I'm not competent. What's the legal phrase, my scope of, practice or my scope of competence yeah scope of i think it's both yeah
0: scope of practice scope of competence
1: right so i'm not competent to deal with every everything Um, yeah competent to deal with very few things but (laughs) to answer your question yeah um one issue which is particularly dear to my heart is the the question of launching so the question of Uh, moving out of a particular um, uh, uh, system into another. So the question of teens moving into college, college kids going into the workplace, um, uh, building your own family, those kind of things. Uh, But also, and, and much more particularly, I I positively love working with people who are engaged in some degree of discernment whether it's into a religious community or out of a religious community or seminary as the case may be. Now, this isn't necessarily a diagnosable issue. It's it's simply a a occasion for um for things like depression and anxiety to crop up, you know, for for it's certainly an occasion for the kind of coping mechanisms of an OCD person to manifest. So even still, I haven't quite narrowed down my ideal client to a particular yeah. set of diagnoses. Mm-hmm. So I do have to be a little bit of a jack of all trades when I advertise myself as somebody who is um, engaged in life transitions with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, so there is, there is still a, a great deal of wiggle room there. But that's my ideal client is somebody who is really discerning um, what is of value to them and how to maintain that, whether it's behavior, a thought, an emotion, a belief, um, and to maintain that in a new system. So, I don't know if that makes sense, but
0: yeah, so a lot of life life transitions, big changes, um, kind of discerning where the value is, where the purpose is, and within what's going on in their life yeah
1: that's good how about yourself
0: what's what's your ideal client what do you look for um i think the first thing is that they are motivated to do their own work (laughs) just because i've sat with a lot of teens that are forced to be there and it's like okay well what do you want to do for the next 40 minutes because you don't want to do this so um but yeah having having clients that to look at what's going on that want to see a change and i see the clients that come in and they say okay adam this is what's going on in my life i want to be open and honest with you i want to make these changes they are by far the most successful clients i have and the the best relationships i've been able to build in therapy are the ones who are like you know this is this is me (laughs) and this is on me um and as a youth minister, I, I say on retreats, I say, you're only going to get out of this retreat what you put into this retreat. And I, I tell the my clients that starting out in therapy. So you're only going to get out of this what you put into that because it's not, it's not a magic pill and, you know, it's not a quick fix. Um, so I think for the first thing for me, it's just that they're motivated. They're willing to go there to be open and honest, not just with me, but with themselves to look at what's going on Um so that's that's by far I think the biggest factor and then I think the second one would probably be that they they are looking to incorporate faith into the picture um as kind of not just an I don't know not just an avenue but for us to really get down to what matters right it's you know when you're talking about purpose and what they value and things like that there's kind of an obstacle from you know from my perspective of if a client doesn't know what they believe or um hasn't really gone there or is afraid to go there it does make it harder sometimes to discuss even the most basic things right and, and therapy is part of that process but being able to have faith in the room or at least explore that right not that they like i believe this this and this not always the case but to be able to bring that into the room, a client who is willing to ask those big questions I feel really helps the therapeutic process because they're, they're not afraid to go into, you know, dive in head first. So, um, those, those two things are really, I'd say my main thing is that they're, they're motivated and that they're not afraid to ask those big questions about life, purpose, death, faith, <laughs> suffering, all that good stuff. Um, and for my yeah for my you know specialty I really enjoy working with teens. because I think a lot of that exploration is happening in those teenage years those young adult years you see a lot of that so I love working with that and I think as far as a diagnosis I really like working with people with anxiety and I didn't think I would like working with people with OCD and scrupulosity but now that it's also become a big part of my practice i'm actually really enjoying it and it's um help kind of find that peace with clients when they are getting lost in their own thoughts and anxiety and um, images of god comes up a lot and you know faulty images of of god and then family so all that stuff i I really like looking at so um yeah that's kind of a lot in there but
1: well i love your focusing in on making one's relationship with god part of the therapeutic relationship and it's an interesting thing because you know so i had theological training long before i had psychological training maybe i had that backwards but whatever um Maybe that was why I didn't persevere. But but the point is, uh, for why I bring that up, is that uh, what is um, is it uh, one of the Teresas? I think it's Mother Teresa who says something along the lines of um, prayer or meditation is what uh, uh, a conscious relationship or conversation with someone you know. Who loves you or or I I butchered that terribly but the the point is that it's it's a relationship and we as as systems you know therapists who who seek to help clients change um, using their various relationships it seems to me at least on some concrete practical level uh, the relationship with God is a huge part of that for any person whether whether atheist or not, I mean, if you're denying that somebody exists or or aren't even aware that he exists, there's a kind of relationship there on some on, yeah. in some tangent, you know, in some extended definition of that word. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's an interesting thing. I'm not there to be a catechist or, or a theologian with with my clients. you know, if you want that, you can go to my website, but I'm not there to do that mm-hmm. as a therapist what i am what i what i do think is very much part of my what i am allowed to talk about in therapy and and use in a therapeutic context is how this person goes about expressing or engaging in a relationship with the divine mm-hmm. whether that's lexio or whether that's uh, meditation whether that's an examination of conscience the rosary attending liturgy whatever that looks like and and at least in a therapeutic context you know it's that is a very open-ended and broad discussion but i i think that's an extremely well yeah. as you say extremely essential part of any change in a person's life
0: yeah that might be a whole another video to explore but, you know I, but i think yeah the idea that the more we know God, the more we will know about ourselves, right that our faith really screams that at us that that we we become freer, we become more of our ourselves when we we lean into christ and and encounter God in that way so there's there's definitely something to Catholic therapy right versus secular therapy because we're yeah. we're seeing this the whole person and we're seeing everything you know, in the context of our sonship or, or daughtership in God. Um, so it, it is really important. And I know um kind of have to wrap up here in a second, but um, yeah, I, this, is a, this is a really good conversation. And I think there's a lot of um, maybe what, <laughs> what uh, we're talking about as the ideal client is probably reveals kind of what would hopefully be a good therapist as well if we kind of flip that on its head and say, you know, we have to be motivated. We have to be looking at our own prayer life. We have to do our own work and, you know, we have to be um, empathetic and checking these things. So um, yeah. Yeah. But
1: good well, stuff. let that uh, evil be sufficient for the day. Yeah. and uh, And maybe, maybe a great opportunity for those who are watching, you know, uh, put a comment below go to my website fill out a comment if you've got a question if you've got uh, a topic you want us to explore let us know and uh, that will help us first of all deliver what you're interested in but second of all um these conversations are are kind of freewheeling and the more we can um be directed in at least the beginning of our conversation the better so
0: um
1: let us know what you guys want to hear about
0: yeah and thank you for watching and uh we'll have some
1: more of this in the (laughs) future cool all right god bless you too man god bless